Well, uh, we'll be looking at Exodus 22, um, uh, 16 through 20. And uh, before we begin, why don't we pray and um, ask the Lord to help us. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for everything that you've given us. We thank you for your word and how beautiful it is. And it is just uh, exhibiting your own beautiness, oh God, your own beauty. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to be Bereans as we study it, God, and give ourselves over to it. And that God, Lord, um, by your spirit helping us, that Lord, we would we attempt to master the text and be mastered by the text, God, for it is your word and your revelation, and this is how you have spoken to us. God, I pray that you would increase our affections for Jesus. Let us continue to understand and comprehend the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ that is for us. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, well, um, like we usually do, Exodus 22, 16 through 20, just these short verses that are jam-packed with lots of, uh, uh, maybe I would say, probably unfamiliar topics that we don't normally cover in Sunday mornings or, I mean, ever. Um, and so anything that stand, stood out to you, anything you want to discuss more, hear more about, or uh, chew on, you know, like that, anything that... Stood out to you, resonated with you? Something that stood out to me is, um, and maybe it's too early to say this, maybe it should play out, is that we have a tendency to categorize sin, and that it was just convicting and overwhelming to me about that we choose these gross sins, but our sins are just as gross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh, quoting Jerry Bridges there, you know, respectable sins that we have categorized and compartmentalized certain sins as these are respectable, well, these are sins that all humans deal with and things like that. But in God's eyes, sin is is... Uh, an abomination before the Lord. It's condemnable. It's uh, worthy of condemnation. Now, I will say there are degrees of sin in some sense. Like, you know, uh, we wouldn't say that um, murder is equal to um, a lie in a sense. Yeah, on a yeah, right, on a societal level. But before God, both a lie and murder are worthy of eternal punishment. Of sin. The wages of sin is death. And you see these, you even see these laws kind of show you that there are degrees of sin. Not every sin gets the same punishment, right? Because there are sins that are more egregious than others because they have more effect on the community. They have more effect on a different person or another person. So there are degrees of sin. And even Jesus says something like this. And I think this is John 19 when he's... Um, kind of standing before, kind of giving an account, and he says, the one who has given me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. So there even seems to be some sense of categorization there. But all in all, it's not, we can't look at it and say, man, their sin is worse and is worthy of greater disdain or greater punishment. Or gre-. No, all sin is worthy of eternal punishment, hands down. And so... 
And we should see our sin like that, that whatever sin that we are that we deem respectable, whether that be pride, arrogance, lust, anger, frustration, you know, unrighteous anger, anything like that, is that we can't deem these things as like, oh, you know, that's, that's what humans deal with. That's, you know, just, that's something that's okay. That's, you know, hey, we all kind of wrestle with that and, and almost minimize it to make it, us feel better, to make it seem more normal. But sin is not normal. Can we say that all sin is not created equal? Is that like a fair thing? Or? Yeah, yeah. Sin, sin, all sin is not created equal in the sense of it is all equal in terms of consequence. But it's not all equal in terms of nature. Like sin, sin is different. And, and I think Romans 1 speaks about this where people kind of devolve in some sense. And sin kind of progresses almost in a snowball effect. Um, so, yeah, I would say that all sin is equal in punishment, but it's all not always equal in nature, right? And we see that even in God's laws that certain sins require restitution. Certain sins require, um, you know, apologies or something like that. And then certain sins require the death penalty. So. But it's not a problem when sin is that's exactly it yeah that that that's exactly it is it is a snowball it's a it's a degradation and that's you know you you think that this one little sin um you know, can really lead to nowhere and really have, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody. But no sin is like that. And we need to have a different perspective of what sin is, that it does not sit static or it does not, um, it is not stagnant, I guess, um, is that it does fester and grow like a fungus in the dark if it's not exposed to the light. It's what sin does. And so any egregious sin, whether it be, you know, what we deem bestiality or adultery or any of these things, it started somewhere, right? It started in a thought or in the inclination of a heart that said, God doesn't care about this. God won't see this. God won't know this. Nobody's going to get hurt by this. At the essence of that, there is pride, right? Is that God's not going to do anything about what I'm about to do. So every sin starts with a sense of pride, and it only evolves and gets worse and worse and worse. Oh, it's like if I can get away with this. No, maybe I can get away with That's exactly. Like, oh, I was told a little white lie. If I, nobody's going to know, see, hear. Yeah. Yeah. And you... Yeah, Exodus, it, it, Moses penned this book. Moses penned this book, and, and uh, you know, it's interesting, when Moses penned this book and got this, uh, was given this, you know, by God, is that it sounds like some of the Israelites were dealing and struggling with some of these things. And, or at the very least, they saw the other Canaanite religions and people around them doing them and said, well, if they're doing it, then what's wrong with us doing it? Why can't we do it? Like, their God's not, they're not doing, they're not doing pretty bad. They're doing pretty well off and doesn't seem like they're getting any punishment. You know, and the prophets and the psalmists, you know, there, there are some of these sentiments where the evildoers or the wicked says, hey, nothing's bad's happening to us. 
So must mean that God doesn't really care or know or see or is unconcerned about these things. But that's a very dangerous thing to believe, right? And that's what we do in our own sin. We, we get away with one thing we think, nothing bad happened, you know? So. Anything else? It kind of reminds me of the verse that's like, if you lead, any, uh, if you lead astray any of the children or, or I guess anybody that's vulnerable or weak, um, it says you're better off. Better be off you tying a tying a boulder to your foot and throwing yourself into the, the sea. It's interesting that that was uh, you know kind of pinned for that sin, but that's what, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Like all the sin, like any of the sins that we commit, each one has like a different way of us like perceiving it and you know, probably even perverting it because. I don't know anybody that does bestiality, but it's a perversion of, of any type of sexuality or since. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, and this is kind of what I wanted to get at on Sunday is that, you know, sin, uh, sin does something with boundaries, right? We all have boundaries in a sense, and we set boundaries for ourselves. We set boundaries for children, you know, because boundaries are a good thing, right? It's good. Our our nation has boundaries, um, supposedly. Um, and so we're supposed to hold these things because it, it's for the betterment of us, for the people that are governed by them. And so, but what sin did, does is they continue to move the line back a little bit, you know, and back a little bit, and a little bit further, and a little bit further, and a little bit further, and a little bit further. And, uh, and that's what these, these sins that we talked about on Sunday do when it comes to marriage or when it comes to you know, uh, unnatural practices like, like bestiality and things like that, is that it's a further, it's a further widening of, of God's boundaries that He set in place, His ideals and His, de- His designs. And so, when, you know, just the first one in marriage in verses 16 and 17 is that we're given this act of a young man who seduces a woman, an unmarried woman who is not his wife. It actually uses those two words to say, it's clearly that this is not his to take. She's a virgin. She's unmarried. She's not his wife. So it's clearly he doesn't have any, um, he doesn't have any right to her. And he seduces her and takes her for himself. Now, there, there's, a, there's a sense of expanding the boundaries or at least dismissing them to say, because God has set up what, how marriage is to function and how it's to relate, you know, relate in our in Israelite world in Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Is that a man, woman shall be united in marriage together, leave, leave family and come together as one. And they were together naked and unashamed. And so, but what this, what this does is say, well, I don't really... One, I don't, it doesn't really have to be confined to the marriage union. And two, uh, I don't really have to go through the right processes to obtain the right to marry her and enjoy this experience with her. And that's the problem. It's saying the boundaries got to set up. I don't really have to fall in line with those. I can really kind of create my own boundaries in some sense. And so, you know, in ancient Israel, I think, I think this probably extended, like, dowries and stuff like that, extended for a long time in other, other cultures. 
but it was the way to signal your desire and intent to marry, uh, to marry um, a, a, a daughter. And so, um, so to, to dismiss it and not have to do that is basically saying, I don't care about the process. I don't care about what's supposed to happen. And it's really a dishonoring of the girl and a dishonoring of the family, her family in a sense. Because basically you giving the bride price is saying, this is what she is worth to me to make her my wife. This is what she's worth to me. I know she is worth something to you too. And so I want to show you and signal to you how much she is worth to me and the value she is in my eyes, that I want to go through the proper channels to make it right. So, yeah. But he's just, this person's dismissing all those things, saying, I'll, I'll go through whatever channels I want to, and it doesn't require those things. Just take what I want. It is. It is. Anything else? It's like an echo of... The, of the original sin, the take a look, and, uh, the look into I saw it and took it. So instead of going through. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorcery. So, um, you know, I, I hopefully what I got across with the sorcery thing is that sorcery. Um, in ancient Israel, is used to um, attain more knowledge and truth and revelation, more than what's already been given. So, in an act of uh, basically, you know, saying I, what I have is not enough, the word that has been given to me is not enough, not sufficient. I need further guidance and counsel. I'll go and seek a necromancer. I'll go and seek a medium, or I'll go and seek a, a sorcerer. And so that's why they are banned from Israel, is because in in essence, they're saying that what God has given is not enough. His word is not sufficient. And uh, it also is believed to be that uh, basically in, in Israel's day, that sorcerers, I said this kind of in passing, sorcerers, necromancers, mediums, they, they can see the future. They have the ability to see the future, but they also were to believe to be people who could determine the future, meaning they're the ones who can construct and ordain and uh, do these things. And, you know, basically those two things, knowing the future and determining the future, are things that only God is capable of doing, right? Knowing and determining the future. So they were, in essence, giving them the powers to do these things. And, you know, I'm trying to remember the passage from Jeremiah, but um, the the <laughs> the prophet Jeremiah, which I, I think we all love the prophets when they get really sarcastic with the people of Israel, but there are places when the prophets get sarcastic with the people of Israel by saying, uh, you're about to go into exile. What can your necromancers do for you now? Basically, uh, you know, it's like, hey, they're telling you that it's not coming. I'm telling you, it's coming. Go and seek them out. See if they can change your future. But what you're going to find out is they can't. And so... Um, that seems like what Israel had been doing at the time is really resting in what their mediums, sorcerers, necromancers were saying. But the prophet through, through God's word is telling them, they're lying to you. How do they even get their... Uh... How do they even get their... 
And it's not with just the sculptures, it's other stuff too. Their information to give to people that seems so real. Is that some kind of... Like a fortune teller? Yeah, like, I mean, how do they... How do they read that? How do they... I mean, it's almost like, well, why does God even allow that to happen? But that's not part of God, that's part of Satan. Mm -hmm. So how does that even... How does it even happen? I don't get it. I mean, it's like, you know, because some of it has been found to be true, maybe a little bit. Well, I mean, they're guessing, or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know they're guessing. Well. Yeah. We know they're guessing because, yeah. you know, Yeah, well, you know, if y'all want to turn to... 1 Samuel 28, we can look at that. I know I said that in passing and told you the story of the witch of Endor with Saul. But, um, but you know, up until this point, uh, Saul's kingship is just a crash and burn, right? From the very beginning, it wasn't supposed to happen, you know, right? 1 Samuel 28. And it's a crash and burn where he is done so many things disregarding of what God said. I mean, so clearly Deuteronomy 17 has told how Israelite kings are supposed to operate and function. Uh, they're basically not supposed to have any interactions with Egypt. They're not supposed to get, get or buy or sell with Egypt or any, any of those nations. Not supposed to have many wives. Uh, supposed to be reading the law and writing it, you know, copying it in, in a sense, and to the people, re reading it out loud to the people. Saul ain't doing none of those things, right? And God's already said, look, I've chosen my new successor. Like, you're, you're done. You're in sin. And so, you know, in a, in a sense, Saul's not believing what God has said to be true, right? Can't believe it that he actually, he actually may not be the guy, after all, to lead God's people. And so, in, in, a, in a matter of, Frights or a matter of fear or something like that is that uh, Saul goes and consults with a medium, with a witch, the witch of Endor, or a medium of Endor, and because he just can't believe what God has already said to be true, and that God's basically, it seems like, turned a, a blind, just a deaf ear to him in some sense. And so this is what it says, 1 Samuel 28, 3. And I'll just read all 28 because it's a really interesting story, uh, what happens. But um, so start verse, verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. That's a really important thing to remember. Samuel, a very influential, important figure in the life of Israel. Samuel the prophet gave guidance to Israel, uh, tried, to, <laughs> tried to lead them in, in the right way, but he died, and that was... That was something that brought sadness to Israel. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of line. That's another good thing to remember. So, so Saul had done something right. He, you know, he was supposed to put all the necromancers, mediums, witches, sorcerers out of the land. They weren't supposed to dwell with Israel because they would be tempted to go to them and find consultation from them. This is where it gets even more interesting. So he's done that, right? The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shechem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So he, 
in this moment, he sees his enemies, in, I mean, surrounding him, right? Surrounding the people. And he is terrified. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He knows that he doesn't have the power to overtake them and things like that. And so, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And very good reason. At this point, Saul had disregarded God's word so many times of what he was supposed to be doing. And so then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. So if God's not going to answer me, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to somebody who will, who will give me answers. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So let's just say this. Um, He puts out the mediums and necromancers out of the dwelling place of Israel. But sin leads him to go even outside those boundaries. And I say, I'm, look, there's no, there's no geographical distance I will not go to find out some answers. Right? I think that should be a caution for us. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, wait. The fact that he actually tried to go through ways that they heard from God during that time. That he tried first through dreams and Urban Thurman and the prophets. That was all okay. That's what I'm saying should be a warning to us. Um, and he tried those ways. But then he said, oh well, he didn't answer me. So ex- it should definitely be a warning. It sh- that was loss of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But God had already already said, I'm never answering you again. Earlier in the chapters, he's yeah. like, "I'm like I've torn, like I'm done with you. Like I'm not ever speaking to you again." So he shouldn't have been surprised when. There is a sense where it's it's an indictment on Saul, even though he has been told that that I'm I'm going to appoint somebody else. Is that the the response should not have been if you won't answer me, I'll go find somebody who will answer me. The act of faith would have been in this sense when God doesn't answer me to keep asking, to keep inquiring through the proper means that He's given us, maybe and maybe to repent, and maybe to repent. Yeah. To be obedient to what is already revealed. Yeah. Well, you put away the mediums, but you really didn't. He's like, yeah. I still got, I, I still know where they're at. I still, yeah. He didn't put away like we might think. You put away, but still there's yeah. still no Yeah. Like a backup plan, kind of. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. a true distance, put away, not deal with it anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. It's um, what he should have done. What what we see faithful people doing in even Samuel and in, in the Psalms is that when God doesn't answer, it's not that we go and look for other answers somewhere else. The psalmist, Hannah, in the book of Samuel, inquires of the Lord, why haven't I been given? I mean, she's praying. Why haven't I been given a baby? You know, and I'm watching these other people. And, I'm so, and she continues to cry out to the Lord day and night. The psalmist does these same things. When God... Why, my God, have you forsaken me? You know, kind of those things. And where, where is God? I don't hear an answer from Him. But the act of faith is not saying, I've gotten no answer. I'll go find it somewhere else. The act of faith is saying, I've got no answer. Therefore, I must patiently wait on the Lord. What Psalm 33 says. And sometimes with our sin, we confuse <clears throat> stopping and pausing. Yeah. Right? And He just paused. Yeah. With the mediums, he didn't stop. That's right. And we yeah. We do that with our sin sometimes. We just mm-hmm. yeah. pause from it a while, and then we 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah, like I was telling Gant, there's like a backup plan in some sense. It's like, well, I know where these people are at. We put them over there in indoor, you know. Yeah, and I think I, I, sometimes I'll make provisions for like future events. Like, yeah. you know, I, I won't, you know, take out the TV or I won't, I don't know, just little things, I guess. I can't really think of one right now, but I know that I'm doing it. Now I know. Like, before, you know, my eyes were open, I was like, that's just life. You yeah. Know, that's just behavior. But now I'm like, Jimmy, yeah. stop. But I always feel like I, I make some sort of. It's getting smaller and smaller, but it's still there. Yeah. And, and so to start back in 8, it only gets worse here. So Saul disguised himself. I really wish I would have looked up that word disguised himself because I, I think it's the same word that happens in um, uh, Judah and Tamar story. Remember, he disguises himself and he goes and he takes, takes Tamar and, you know, yeah, I, yeah I, I think it's the same word, but I could be wrong. This is 28.8. It may not be the same word. I don't... Is it the same word there? I wish I would have looked this up. What chapter is tomorrow? I think it's in uh, Genesis. Genesis. Uh, it's in the 30s. Is it 39? Yeah, I think it is 30, 38 or 39, actually. Because there's a word here that appears in Genesis 37, 38, 39. It's actually to search. Kafash. Thirty one thirty five. Thirty eight is Judah. Yeah, Kafash. Oh, yeah, it's used in the, the story of the prophet in 1 Kings 20 and 22 about the prophet who disguised himself by putting a bandage over his eyes. Yeah, I'm thinking of a different word, sorry. So, um, but in, in general, disguising yourself is not, never really a good, uh, a never a good thing when you're trying to hide your appearance, when it's all, it, it seems to appear to always be deceptive in essence, right? To disguise yourself, you're trying to do something that will go unseen. And so that's what, uh, that's what Saul does. He, he disguises himself. He doesn't want people to know um, that the king is going to a medium, doesn't want the medium to know that he's a king, right? And so he and two men went with him, and they came to the woman by night. Another interesting fact. 
When things happen at the night, it's not very good. It's meaning they're trying to keep things secret. For example, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus goes to Jesus when? At night. He goes to him at night because he's a religious leader and he does not want people to know that he is going to question Jesus because he seems like an interesting fellow. So, going at night. He said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. So clearly, she doesn't recognize him, right? And it's funny because this is almost an indictment on him. He's like, uh, I think you know what the king has said, that we shouldn't be doing this, right? So, like, he should have, like, recognized her words. Like, I know you know, you know what the king said. He said, we, we can't be doing any necromancy. And he says, how has he cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land? Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Whoo. Ooh, scary place to be, right? Oh, don't, don't you worry. Ain't nothing going to happen to you. Something's going to happen to Saul, though. <laughs> then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Again, this is where I think that she didn't really... <laughs> she's surprised what she's done. She's like, whoa... Picture of ghost. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she didn't do it for the first for, first thing. She's like, oh, man, I've tried this for like 30 years, and this is the first time. Like, I've never, never had this happen before. Uh, yeah, she's like, whoa, I don't know what I've just done. It wasn't a cast for the friendly. It was not a cast for the friendly. Samuel was not happy. And uh, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, Saul, I see a God coming up out of, out of the earth. Right. He says a, a what? A God. A little G. So basically, like a, there is a supernatural figure coming up. So spirit. Spirit, yeah. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe, so he's someone of, of high regard. And, Samuel, and Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his, with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, this is not the greeting that Saul was expecting. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? What are you doing? What are you doing here, Saul? Saul answered, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. There I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Why are you asking me when he's already been clear what he said? Why, why, why are you saying why, why are you Why are you inquiring? You already know what he said. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also in the hand of the Philistines. Yeah, you want information? 
He, he, yeah, you, you want your uh, tarot card read? You want your fortune cookie explained? This is it. You're going to die tomorrow, you and your sons. And so, clearly, this is an indictment on Saul, and this is when we get to the point of God's sufficient word. God had already said what was going to occur. God had already told him why he wasn't going to listen to him anymore. And yet, Saul continues in his rebellion and says, I don't believe what God said. There's got to be another answer for these things. Let me go. Let me, let, me break, let me break the law that God has given me to give to the people. Right? And so God's word is sufficient. And we don't need other means or mechanisms to, un, to, to basically receive more revelation, to receive more knowledge of what God has said. We already have that. And God is clear. And this is why I said, look, we don't need to play around with Ouija boards and palm readers and, you know, and psychics. And I'm not saying that, well, one, they're creepy. Um, but two, they're frauds. They're frauds. <coughs> and you're asking them to give you something that they have no ability to give you. <laughs> Just to see what they say? I think it's funny because I know the truth. Yeah. I want to hear what they have to say because I want to hear the truth. Like, I want to go run out and see what's going on. Cross the road. Yeah, Yeah, they they can't give you anything. Okay. I have heard, I have never heard this text preached the same. First Samuel 28? Yes, I've never heard it preached the same because I have heard that this was an evil spirit that brought Samuel up and then I have heard that this was all God doing this. So what is it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, first off, I would say uh, mediums and, and necromancers are... Uh, they are evil because they're trying to play with something that they have no ability to play with. Second, uh, they don't have any power to resurrect or to bring up people from the dead. Only God has the power to bring up people from the dead. So I, I can give, I don't think this text gives any credit to the, to the medium in Endor. It's, it's, an, it's like a judgment scene for Saul, that God's doing something supernatural and, and outside the bounds of nature to indict him basically say, man, your doom is coming because you came here, even because you came here. And so, yeah, I, I can't ascribe. He doesn't have that power. Uh, yeah, I do think there are, demo- so, you know, in the Gospels, we do get demonic activity through, um, through yeah, demons possessing people. I'm confused on, on your specific question because I think they do have some power. Yeah. But then she's obviously blown away by what she does see. Yeah. Power and knowledge has limits. Yeah. Their power and knowledge seems to have a limit. And God, it, it just seems that through the language and through the confirmation of Samuel's words being spoken again yeah. and how they really corroborated what he said earlier, that this is, this is God. I think we can be sure that God allowed it. Yeah. In any of those instances, even obviously it, here, it, so okay, even in other instances, anything that I'll, I'll give you. Oh yeah. 
Well, we've already seen this in the book of Exodus. We've already seen this in the book of Exodus itself, is that Pharaoh has his own magicians, and they do seem to have some dark power to do certain things. The same thing in Daniel is that the court magicians or whatever seem to have certain powers to do certain things. I mean, what you see in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 22 through 24, is that, you know, the Balak and Balaam stories. Balaam seems to be a, you know, better word, witch doctor in some sense. But that's a great, that's a great example of he might have some powers, but at any time God can override those at any point. They yeah. Really yeah. Right. Poor Samuel. I don't. I don't know what's on Samuel's mind. Uh, you know, I, I just know that he's not. I just know that he's not happy that Saul, the guy that that he left there to rule Israel's people, has. No, I don't think he's confused by Samuel's comment, it's like, why haven't you believed the Lord, what the Lord has said? Like, why, well, you know, you're coming here for answers, why God is, I mean, he's silent on you right now, when he's clearly told you he's forsaken your kingdom and he's taking it from your hands and giving it to David, you know? So, yeah. So, again, we have scripture. We have God's revelation to us. You know, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 is that at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the heir of all things, who created the world. Is that we have the final and authoritative revelation, and we don't need these, uh, we don't need these people who present themselves, who are ultimately frauds. And this is what Israel's prophets indict them for: you're going to people who cannot save you. It's the same thing, you know. They indict, they indict them for their idols as well. They indict them for their sorcerers, for their idols. You know, even Isaiah the prophet's very uh, sarcastic in some of these things. And he says, you have to carry the idols that you depend on to save you. You have to, you have to put them on your back and you have to carry them. And they fall over and you've got to pull them up and then you burn them to cook your food and stuff like that. It's like, they can, they're not going to save you. And your necromancers and mediums, they're not going to save you. They're actually telling you a false report, right? It, uh, it reminds me, this is a little bit off, off topic, but in relation to like false prophets and stuff like that in, in Israel. I think this is with Micah. But uh, the king uh, tells his people, go bring me, go bring me a prophet. And, and um, so they go and they bring him prophets. And, and they bring him Micah. And he's like, no, 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 don't bring Micah. He never tells me good news. He never tells me good news. It's because Micah only tells him the truth, right? It's not. Oh, no, no, don't, don't bring that guy. God, he only brings bad news. Always a Debbie Downer. Yeah, he's yes, yeah. 
He's a yes man to Yahweh. I don't want that. So, and so I, I would just, you know, like, like I tried to, to bring, about on, bring out on Sunday is that there are things that we go and search for. Hey, God hasn't given me a sufficient answer on this. God hasn't given me a clear answer on this. God hasn't given me this on this. Maybe there's something else I can go to. Maybe there's something else I can get more revelation from, more truth from, more anything from. I would say this, that God's Word is sufficient. Second Timothy 3.16 and 17. It's sufficient. Second Peter 1. It's sufficient for everything that pertains to godliness. So, And then uh, bestiality. You know, um, we've already kind of uh, toyed around all, already with this, and we've seen how boundaries of sexuality have been um, have been expanded in that I don't have to go through the proper means. I can take whoever I want, whenever I want, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to be intimate with. But also these boundaries get expanded. Like it doesn't matter who I, you know, have sexual relations with, with or what. It doesn't, those boundaries don't, shouldn't apply. And uh, it is grotesque. It is a, is a, a sense of rearranging God's order. And that's what I really want to get at is that in Genesis 1 and 2, along with God making everything, is that he also made distinctions through things. You know, he's, you know, he's made distinctions. You know, there's trees and there's the sun and moon, stars and things like that. You know, terrible drawings. But, uh, but then, and then there's things that crawl on the ground. There's things that fly in the air. Uh, Um, things that fly in there, thing, you know, all, all these different things. And then there's a person. And there's a clear distinction be- between these two because he says, in our image, we will make him, right? Image of God. That's what distinguishes these things from this thing that God created. Now, what a sin like this does, bestiality, is that it removes this distinction, wherein all these things are of equal importance and status, right? And, and so it's erasing distinctions that God has given in creation. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I unfortunately did some research and looked up some of this to see. But there are, there are movements towards this. Uh, people are marrying animals and dogs and, you know, and, you know, holograms and stuff like that. You know, that pe- people are doing that. Again, that's in our own cultures that people are trying to erase the distinctions and designs that God has put in place from the very beginning in creation, saying that everything is of equal status. But that's not true. Everything is not of equal status. Humans are more important to God than animals. Now, let me say this, so everybody here is on the podcast too. Uh, I think animals are important. I think we should be good stewards of animals. I think we should care for animals. He created them. And they have a purpose. <laughs> not, not every single animal is we should eat, Miss Kathy. But, but they're not all the same. And Jesus, I think, makes the same same argument in Matthew chapter 6. If you remember, one of my favorite passages, I think the one that I read the most 
out of every every passage in the Bible is when Jesus directs his uh, Sermon on the Mount at worry and anxiety. He says, do not be anxious, right? And then he points their eyes to something. He says, look at the birds of the air and look at the what? Flowers of the field. Look how that God provides for them. They don't worry about what they're going to wear. They don't worry about what they're going to eat or drink. And God gives them everything. And he says, how much more you? That is Jesus' way of saying there is a distinction there between flowers and animals and people. You are of more value. So if I provide for the thing that is lesser value, how much more will I provide for you? So what do you have to worry about? What do you have to worry about? I'll ask the people that say they're going to come back with like a flower or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I think... Uh, yeah. I think we have to be really careful in, in all of us, and especially in our, our society, is to see people are made in the image of God. They have dignity and value. And we shouldn't try and raise distinctions between animals and humans by saying, no, we're all, we're all in this together, and you know, you know, we're all of same value. And when we're not, God has put these distinctions and ideals and designs in place from the very beginning. Does that also apply when people say that animals are I mean, there's a distinction between us having souls and, you know, objects and animals. Yeah. So does that also mean that they're... Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know about the eternality of animals. You know, we get text in like Isaiah when it speaks about the new heavens, new earth. Now, I think some of this could be metaphorical language, so I'll, I will go ahead and say that. But the line will lay down with the what? The lamb, the baby will play next to the uh, adder's nest or hole. And so, again, I don't think that me, I think that might be metaphorical language, meaning there is going to be a, an unimaginable peace in the new heavens, new earth, where there will not be a danger to any, any of God's people in the new heavens, new earth. So, I don't know about the eternality of an animal. Uh, there is clear distinctions between them two. And I think we should continue to uphold those distinctions. Um, you know, I told you about that story um, about a month ago in a sermon. My, my former pastor, Andy Davis, you know, he was riding, riding with his kids down a dirt road one night. And um, it was real dark. And a horse ran out in front of him. And he hit the horse. And it landed on his hood. I mean, it just totaled his car. And so, man, he's there, he's checking on his kids, and, and a person drives up, and the person says, are you going to call somebody about that, what you did? And he's like, yeah, yeah, and then they drove off. The next person stops and says, are you okay? Are you okay? Well, how's your kids? Now, tell me about the two different responses to that scenario. So... We, we just need to be careful and say, look, animals are a gift. Animals are bring enjoyment in this life. They provide. We responsibility with dominion. And, and we have responsibility with dominion to be good stewards of, of the animals that we've been given. But there is a distinction. There is a distinction. And so, yeah. The good word is really not. Distinctions? Yeah. <laughs> Everything. Everything. And, and to participate in acts like this, bestiality, 
is that it not only lumps us together like in this whole sphere of everything's the same, but it actually makes humans subhuman. Like, subhuman. We are beginning to act more like beast than like images. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know what's what's even. I think there's something to it. You know, we were looking at this psalm a couple of weeks ago in in the Sunday school class. I think this is Psalm 22 or 24, one of those. 23. I think it's 22 actually. But uh, the psalmist is describing evildoers or the wicked who are persecuting him. They use all this language of animals. He calls them ox, wild ox. He calls them dogs. He calls them lions. He calls them something else. But we also see this, you know, people are called snakes and serpents. Um, so there is a sense where even these can be indictments on people when they begin to act like beasts and do and don't operate in the image of God. Because they're not treating others like in the image of God. So yeah, um, anything else on BCL? And let me say this about, about this. So, you know, I think we all have the same reaction when we hear something like BCLity like that. Saying, how could somebody... I, don't, I can't even comprehend that. But we have to have a, a really uh, a greater understanding, greater understanding, like sin doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it, it is a distortion of the mind where people engage in things that are so unnatural that it can be easily justified in one's mind. And so it should look Sin should always look like, that doesn't make sense. That's not how God designed it to work and to be and to act and function. And so, sin evolves into the more and more unimaginable. And this is where Romans 1, you know, 18 through 32 comes in, where sin evolves, 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 evolves into more unimaginable, unimaginable things. And verse 32 ends by saying, not only do these people participate in these acts, but they applaud others who, in, who join them. So, sounds very familiar. Is that not only is it, uh, you know, not only have people kind of evolved in sin in, in that sense and gone to more unimaginable levels, degrees, whatever, but they also encourage others to do the same. Sin isn't logical. It doesn't make sense. It's irrational at times. And so, you know, when we think, how could somebody? Oh, very easily. Paul says something very similar to this, I think, in 1 Corinthians 10. But by the grace of God, what? There go I. There go I. So. We got four minutes. Um, we can talk about soul allegiance. I, I feel like. Uh, we've talked about this before, but God's not going to allow His people to try and hold um, basically two different gods and and do methods of worship to two different gods. It, it just can't happen. Uh, 
it's impossible to worship and have two masters. Jesus makes this very similar point. You can't serve two masters. You're going to be devoted to one and not to the other, right? And, uh, and so God's established boundaries for even his worship uh, is that he requires in his worship exclusivity. You can't have two. That's why I use the example on Sunday is that it's like asking your, you know, asking a person on the first date and you ask them, hey, would you like to go on a date with me? And they're like, yeah, I would love to. I'd love to. And then you say, well, can I bring my boyfriend or girlfriend with me on our first date? It's like, huh? Yeah, it's like, uh, no, I don't know if you know, but that's not how this works. Um, you kind of have to like be solely devoted to me. And, and so this is no longer available. Yeah. It's like God set up boundaries and that it matters how and what we worship and in what ways. And, and that there's, there's such a seriousness to this prohibition that these people who do these things are to be banned, to be uh, brought out of Israel, to be executed at times, because it's so pervasive in Israel. And if it's allowed to, if it's allowed to exist, it will corrupt the whole people. We've already, we see this in the Bible. I mean, you know, I think I mentioned Solomon was the worst, the worst, I mean, I guess best uh, example of this is that he marries Pharaoh's daughter, you know, and what happens is that she can't, yeah, yeah, she brings with her all her idols and all her gods, and therefore he starts worshiping her gods And he starts building altars to them, allowing altars to be built to them. So you see how, again, sin doesn't sit stagnant, and it's going to affect you if you allow it to exist in your life. If you allow it to exist in your life, don't think that you can compartmentalize it and, you know, put it off in this room where it can't ever touch you. It will. Sin has pervasiveness and strength to it where it will, it will affect you if you allow it to exist, if you don't kill it. And this is why John Owen can say the things like, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so, and this is why Paul says in, in Colossians 3, put to death, put to death every sin. And then he just lists them out. Put them to death. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no amount of classes that you can take. There's no amount of, uh, of self-discipline that you, can, that you can do. Apart from God and the working of the Spirit to kill sin, you need God's help. There's, there's no way you can do it apart from, apart from the Lord. I have a question. So all three verses, 18, 19, and 20, have an end in like a similar meaning. Like the not allowed to live. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? Like, are they physically being put to death and it's considered righteous because it's... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some debate over, you know, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. So it's almost like in, in, in the Hebrew, it's the word like to be, or I guess to live, it could be taken as in like to live, like to dwell, to, to have residence among you. Like, and that would kind of make sense about the witch of Endor, right? Um, that she's not allowed to live in their, in their, I guess, 
dwelling, like not to be around them. So, yeah, and then it's clear the person who lies with an animal shall be put to death is a death penalty. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just a banishment. But then that's when it's okay. Yeah, there's, there's, um, So, we got, you know, first off, we got to remember that, you know, these laws were given to Israel. So, you know, we don't, you know, we don't go kill palm readers and, you know, we, you know, you know those things. That's not what the, if that's what you got out of this command, hopefully nobody got that out of this because that's not what it's saying. When did we stop burning them? When did we stop burning witches? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Salem witch trials. Yeah. Yeah. And man, if you sneezed wrong, you were a witch. I mean, like, like it was, it was scary. Um, and so, uh, but there's a seriousness to it in in Israel. And um, so, I, yeah, because it's seriousness with God. I mean, the the ban or um, exec, I think how the ESV puts it, devoted to destruction is the same word that's going to be used in the conquest narratives in Joshua. So when they're told to go into the land and to devote these things to destruction, right? devote this to destruction. Now, I will say this about the Joshua conquest. When they're told like to the Midianites or something like, go and devote them to destruction, you know, wipe them out, is um, it... I don't know if it always necessarily means killing every single person until, yeah, because you see that in Joshua that they go into the Midianites and they devote it to destruction. Well, later in a couple of chapters, there's still some Midianites around. So, yeah, and they allowed some people to come and live among them who would ascribe and pledge allegiance to Yahweh. So clearly, you know, devote to destruction is not total annihilation. Um, it would kind of be like our way of hyperbole in the sense of like, you know, I played Genevieve in basketball and I completely destroyed her, where she is no longer in, on existence on this earth. Remember on um, Hacks of the Care of the Animals, Dexter is in jail and they're talking about the stories of the, the Black Pearl and there were no survivors. And I think Dexter says, then where did the stories come from? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly. If you want to read uh, more about this topic, about... Um, kind of the morality behind these bands or these band to destruction. Paul Copan, uh, C-O-P-A-N, has written a great book. Uh, Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N. And uh, it's called, Is God a Moral Monster? And um, it's basically, you know, uh, responding to these accusations that God is a uh, immoral genocidal monster who just, you know, does these things. And um, he looks at this language, ban, you know, ban or put to destruction, and brings out some of those similar insights. That's, you know, that's what's kind of shaped me in thinking about this language um, in the Bible. And so, really helpful on that. But these sins are serious because they're an affront to God. They're in rebellion to God. They're unrepentant. They're not wanting to change their position. And so, and they can so easily lead Israel to away, which they, they ultimately do.
So was the destruction, like when they went into those communities, was it like their, um, like their military, their spiritual leader, like their leadership? Yeah. If we destroy a community, if we wipe all of that out at one yeah. time. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, it seems to be uh, more of a military campaign. And so this is not like, and this is what some of the ways that this has been presented, I think, in the, in the conquest that's incorrect, like that Israel is ransacking the Midianite village in the night and slaughtering, you know, innocent children and women, you know. No, this is two people who have met on a battlefield and Israel has won and conqu- conquested Midian through military battle. So, unfortunately, that's what some people present, these conquests, that they're so immoral because that's what, they're going in the hiddenness of night and taking people and, you know, uh, doing the, and it, that just doesn't seem the way that Joshua actually reads and says these things. Um, well, the coming chapters, God will continue to say, I will drive them out. Yeah. I will drive them out. I drive. So, more than likely, what was utterly destroyed was the few that would absolutely refused to leave when no, we wanted to, to fight back, you know. No. No, there was many occasions, like, like Chance said, there was many occasions where when people were driven out is that they had sojourners living among them. And who are the sojourners? They're the people who didn't have a dwelling place or residence. We'll talk about sojourners this week. So, also this week. So, the bigger picture is to see the purpose, and the purpose is to cleanse the land, to get the land to be a, basically a bigger tabernacle, so that the, the land is holy, and it, and it can't have idol worship, can't have these things. So, drive them out so the land can be holy. Yeah, there. There's it. In the Old Testament, there's never presentations of what's going on that Israel's doing as genocidal. To my knowledge, there's really kind of like one place where there is a an attempt to genocide, and that's in the book of Esther, when Haman tries to basically kill all the Jews. I mean, that, that's the only time in the Bible that we hear of genocidal language. You know, and so, and they're on the receiving end, but never are the... Never are they presented as the the ones who are enacting genocide. That's not the language that the Bible uses of these. Well, let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this discussion. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would continue to help us as we think through these difficult topics, as we study them, that, God, we would learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We would see that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that, God, we would worship him rightly. Lord, we love you, and it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you all.